Please turn with me to Exodus, the book of Exodus, second book into the Bible. And uh, we're starting a new series, as you've perhaps read in The Messenger, a new series this morning and a new series this evening. This evening, while you're turning to Exodus, I'll just say about this evening, we're studying uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. We read and uh, responded with the first question this morning, what is man's chief end or what is man's primary purpose, the modern version says. And uh, what we're going to do is like they did in the old church, which was in the evening, the pastor would lead them in a study of the, of the shorter catechism. I'll take one of the texts or one of the other pastors will take one of the texts that is a proof text for that catechism question and answer, and we'll preach a sermon from it and teach the catechism uh, answer along the way. So we'll repeat it in the morning service. You'll have opportunity to rehearse it in the day with your family, and then we'll study it again in the evening. And uh, then in the mornings, we're going to start this new series on the book of Exodus. And the book of Exodus, as one scholar says, is a, is a, is a guide to the essential truths of the Bible. In the book of Exodus, we have, as the, whoever wrote the the summary of the series, and our messenger said it very well, in Exodus is the gospel. We have the pattern of, of bondage and redemption, and we have the laws of God and the implications of keeping those laws and the blessings that come from them. We have the, the gospel and the entire Christian life in the book of Exodus, and in the book of Exodus we also find uh, the redemptive, the key redemptive events that are alluded to often throughout the rest of the Bible. So, the combination of the book of Exodus as a, as a shorthand guide to the whole of the Bible and with studying the Westminster Confession in the evening or the Catechism in the evening, we really hope to fulfill our role as pastors of helping to form our congregation spiritually, to carry out that mandate that we heard in the, uh, regarding baptism to disciple one another in the deep truths of Scripture. Since our time is limited, we're going to dive right in and begin reading with chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, which I'll use as an introductory text, and then, of course, we'll go back to chapter 1, verse 1, and go through the whole book if I live long enough. And we'll, but uh, we'll start with 6, 6 through 8 this morning. Say therefore to the people of Israel, this is God saying to Moses, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I'll bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Open our eyes, O Lord that we would behold in this very old, Old Testament book the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, His eagerness to redeem us from our bondage and to set us free into the liberty that is found only 
as children of God the Father. Would you please fall on us powerfully by your Spirit to make this Word come alive in our hearts. We pray it in the strong name of Christ and for His sake. And God's people said, Amen. Many years ago in my my church suffered a tragedy, a tragic loss of a, a very unexpected loss of a 36-year-old man, 36-year-old deacon. He left behind uh, his bride, they had not been married very long, and their child who was about three, I think, maybe two or three. It was a terrible tragedy died from complications of a genetic disorder. And as you can imagine, this young mother trying to provide for her son, facing the fact that recently her son had been diagnosed with the same genetic disorder that his father had, and, and, and he was, she was overwhelmed with life, understandably overwhelmed with life. We could see it occurring as a community, and then pastors, the two of us who were pastors, saw her spiraling down, and we heard her spiraling down to the point that we feared she was going to do something harmful to herself and to her child. So we went and pleaded with her to receive help, went to her home, and when she wouldn't receive it, we had to call emergency services, and they responded very quickly and and pushed in the door and, and gathered up the little boy and uh, took him to safety to a family who could take care of him temporarily while his mother got better. And then they took care of her. She didn't want to be taken care of. But they sort of ushered her, we all did, sort of ushered her into the ambulance and she was resisting the whole way and finally said, I'm just not going to go. And the very wise captain of the squad, the paramedics and firemen, said, Ma'am, you don't understand. You don't have a choice. You're going to get help. And we have effectively apprehended you to take you to help and healing. That's exactly what happened. She was taken to a kind and compassionate place where professionals could help her get back on her feet again, just give her rest and respite. And we could uh, remind her of the promises of God and assure her that we were going to help walk this long road with her. And the Lord did make her better, that the Lord did cause her to flourish, cause her son to flourish. I get a Christmas card from them every year and remember that line, remember that, that dramatic moment We are apprehending you so that you might get better. It's what God must do for these Israelites who are in captivity in Egypt and what God must do in reality for all of us. And if you don't believe it, look just at one more verse below what we read in verse 9. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen or literally they did not heed, they did not obey him. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not obey Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. They had been so traumatized by their 430 years of slavery in Egypt 
that they could not hear the good news and they could not obey God's voice, which was, come with me into liberty. Come with me into liberation, into freedom. Now, if your head is spinning about this history and Israelites in Egypt and so forth, just hang on. We'll get to all of that history eventually. Don't worry, but just get the big idea. They've been slaves for a long time, and they have been abused, and they have been given harsh labor. They've been pressed uh, to the point of exhaustion and death. They've been much abused and traumatized. And so you can imagine that when Moses comes and says, God says, it's time to go. God says, he's going to set you free. God says, he's going to work a miracle and he's going to be more powerful than this Pharaoh and take you into a land flowing of milk and honey. That sounds great, but it's too good to believe. And God says, has to say to his people, you must obey me because I am apprehending you to take you into freedom. Just as Jesus says to you this morning, believe in God, believe also in me. In view of God's sovereign grace, in view of his sovereign goodness, because, of, because he has not only made promises, but sovereignly delivers them in Jesus Christ and, and brings them within your grasp this morning by means of the Holy Spirit, you must leave your servitude to sin. You must enter into the freedom, the liberty of the children of God. Just think about it with me in verse 6. First of all, this servitude of sin that he is, he is picturing for us in their servitude in Egypt. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them. God is in the habit of delivering his enslaved people. This is a picture, yes, it is a picture of the bondage of sin and spiritual bondage and that God sets us free. But we, we, mustn't, we mustn't miss the fact that, by, that God says in the Old Testament, especially in the minor prophets, that he is in the habit of releasing all peoples who are in bondage. That when God finds any person in bondage of any kind, his heart is stirred by that. And he will not rest until every form of human bondage is done away with, which will not be completely taken care of until the great day. But God opposes it. God is angered by it. God mobilizes his people to step into it. Even secular scholars will admit that when they look more carefully at the abolition of slavery in the British Empire, that they cannot explain it by economic means, they can't explain it by uh, cultural means, by any kind of societal explanation. They can only explain that it is a kind of miracle because it would take a miracle for a whole British Empire dependent on slavery worldwide to say spontaneously, we don't want that anymore and to abolish it. God set his people, sets his, his image bearers free from slavery. And God sets his people free from their bondage to sin as well. God comes to you this morning saying, what is it that holds you in bondage? 
What is it that holds you as a slave? For some of you, within the sound of my voice, you're in a cheap motel room or some other place and someone literally is holding you against your will to do shameful things. And I'm here to tell you, if you reach out to emergency services, they can contact us and we have ministries that are shaped just for you. But others of you are spiritual slaves. You're enslaved to your past, the memory of your past sins and failures. Some of you feel yourself in bondage to your, to your emotional makeup. Some of you feel yourself in bondage to shame that besets your family and you just can't shake it. Some of you feel yourself in bondage to a relationship. Some of you feel yourself in, in bondage to your, to your prejudices or to your, your, your manner of speech or to your gossip or your besetting sin or an addiction that's chemical or an addiction to an action. Others of you are, feel yourself in bondage to other people's sins. Not that you are... Uh, responsible for that particular sin that's been done against you as a, as a parent to you or, or a boss or, or your past family or, the, or the, the subculture you grew up in. You, you feel yourself in bondage and enslaved to that. What hope is there for you? The hope comes in this text as we read on in verse 6. And he says, through Moses... I will deliver you from slavery, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and the great acts of judgment. God uses a powerful word, I will redeem you, ga'al in Hebrew. It often has a financial connotation, buying something out of a, we would say out of a pawn shop, out of hock. But in the Bible, Hosea had to buy back his bride. Gomer was his wife. She went back into prostitution, and the only way he could deliver her was to pay her owner for her. He paid a financial price to rescue, to redeem her out of her prostitution. It commonly occurs in combination with another word, kinsman. And, and, and the Bible teaches not only that God redeems, that He's the God of redemption, that He sets us free from our slavery, but He sets us free through other people. He uses His people to join Him in the work of redemption. And so in the Old Testament, they describe, they describe the law of a kinsman redeemer. Someone has has uh, been murdered, and he has no one to, to, uh, to, to take up the cause of justice, obviously, because he's not living anymore. And so a kinsman redeemer, the nearest of kin, is to take responsibility for pursuing justice. The, the, the head of a home dies, and he leaves a widow and children, and they, they are threatened with the loss of their land and their, their, their provision of income. And a kinsman redeemer is to come in and buy that land and preserve it for the family. If a man dies without an heir, the nearest of kin who is unmarried is to marry that widow and produce an heir for the honor of his name. A redeemer who is nearby, someone who is nearby is to step in and redeem. 
God sends Moses to be the kinsman redeemer. Literally, he is related to the Israelites, and he's a fellow human being. And because he is those things, and because he's called by God, he has a responsibility to go in and deal with a problem that is not his own, not of his making. He tried to get out of it. He tried to protest. But God said, no, you're the man. You're the kinsman redeemer. You go in. I'll do the powerful work. I'll work the power, but I'm going to do it through you. You're going to have the privilege of joining me in this work of redemption. And so Moses does it. So I come back to you. If you're in some kind of bondage, what do you do? Yes, you cry out to God. You cry out to the God who is predisposed to answer your need, the one who has proven in Jesus Christ that He has come to rescue those in bondage, those walking in darkness. But He also does it through people. If you're in this congregation, you just look around this place in your mind's eye, if not literally, you look around. You're not alone. Every need you have can be can be ministered to by someone or group in this congregation. You're at odds with your spouse and you feel no hope. We have a ministry to help you work toward reconciliation and peace. You have psychological, emotional needs where you need professional counseling. We have the Christian Psychological Center. And then there are other Christian counselors around here as well. There's no shame in going there. I'm a frequent visitor myself. And then, and then you have a physical need, you have a financial need. This is what the church is for. We are here to help provide redemption. And not only is it for people in this church, but we are kinsmen redeemers in Memphis. Now, I want you to bear with me here for a moment and, and listen to a, a very key theological truth that has been obscured of late in the tensions of our culture. But you have to hear it through gospel ears, not the way it's being mischaracterized even by some preachers. When we say, as when the Bible teaches us that we have responsibility for our forefathers' sins, the Bible says that. We have responsibility for our forefathers' sins. When something is said like that in this present culture without anything else, what, are, what is our, what is our re- reaction? It is, I am not. I am only responsible for my own sins. I am not guilty for the sins of the past. Oh, you're not hearing. We're saying you're res- we are, the Bible says we are responsible for sins. When it tells us we are responsible... Not only so that we can repent if we have somehow continued in those sins, but it tells us we are responsible because God has given us all the resources necessary to deliver those who are in bondage to those sins. God has given us all the resources necessary to provide healing for those who have been affected by our forefathers' sins. As you see, the Bible doesn't tell us this kind of thing so that we can be endlessly guilty. 
The Bible doesn't tell us that we're responsible for our forefathers' sins so that someone will be able to extract money from us. That's not the point. The point is, the Bible says, you're responsible for your forefathers' sins. In fact, you are connected to the sins of everybody in the whole world. And the good news of that is, Jesus Christ has given you, a kinsman redeemer, the, 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 the resources to provide healing for those who are still in bondage to those sins around the whole world. That's why we have world missions conferences. We have so much, so many resources, we can give it away. We send people across overseas to take the gospel to people who have been benighted uh, in their souls, been denied the gospel, and we could say, what, what would it look like if we said, they're not my responsibility, I'm not related to them. I've done 23 in me, I don't have any connection to those people. What would that be? That would not be the gospel. You see, if we deny that we have connection to sins and to, the, and to the healing of sins, to the repairing of sins, we deny the gospel itself because that's the way Jesus healed us. When Jesus hung on the cross, he became sin for us. He wasn't infused with sin to become a criminal. He didn't become one who actively committed those sins. He became responsible for our sins. And by taking responsibility for our sins, he was able to give us his righteousness and heal us. And that's what you and I have the joy of doing. You can afford to say, I am, I am grieved that my forefathers did that to you. But I'm here to tell you the gospel is so marvelous it can heal me, and it can heal you. It can make us brothers and sisters. I'm so sorry that, the, that, the, that this world has done that to you. You're not saying I'm guilty of that. You're saying I, I own the responsibility of your pain, and I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to become an insider with you, and I'm going to tell you the good news, and I'm going to show you the good news and in practical ways demonstrate the good news to you for your deliverance. This happened recently in a dramatic way to a friend of mine who was uh, working on her dissertation. She had to do some interviews, and as she was... She was interviewing someone who had been hurt by a system in the past as a young, young man, and uh, he was still bitter about it, still angry about it, and he was, he was voicing that in her interview. And as he described what he was going through and, and, and what that system had done to him, she realized that her grandfather is the one who put that system into place. And she started to cry. He didn't understand why she was crying. She asked, he asked her why she was crying, and, and other people gathered around her and asked why she was crying, and, and then she said, because my, my grandfather put that system into place. My grandfather was responsible for, for what you experienced and why you're angry today, and, and I'm sorry. 
The people around her said, no, you don't, you're not supposed to apologize because that was your grandfather. You didn't do it. The man said, thank you. And I forgive you. I forgive your grandfather. And then they embraced. And they've become close friends. He checks on her every week, asks how he can help with the dissertation, how he can praise very specifically. But do you see what happened? She, she is not guilty of what her grandfather did to that young man. She didn't even know it happened. She wasn't even alive when it happened. But by taking responsibility for it, she was able to become a kinsman redeemer and say, let me bear that burden with you and show you the good news of a gospel that can heal both of us. That's what, that's what Exodus reveals in a very dramatic way. God not only redeeming his people, but using others, using Moses and Aaron in order to be his kinsmen, redeemers. And you and I have that privilege. We have infinite resources of heaven by which we can bring redemption to the world. Well, the second point won't take so long. Verse 7, verses 7 and 8 give the good news of what happens when you come to Christ as your, as your kinsman redeemer. When you come into fellowship with other kinsmen redeemers who have also been redeemed by Jesus Christ. When you come into the fellowship of the covenant community, you experience freedom through service. You experience freedom through service to your, to your father. He says, I'm going to take you to be my possession. He calls them his family. I'm going to be your father. You're going to be my children. You're going to be my heirs. Everything I have is yours. I want you to participate with me in the, in the thrill of redeeming this world. You're going to be my possession and I'm going to, I'm going to take you to your home. You don't need to live in Egypt any longer. I'm taking you to a place where will the land will be fruitful, where you may multiply, and where my covenant story, my redemptive story, will be unfolded through the coming of Christ, His birth, death, and resurrection. And, and also, he says through the rest of this book, chapters 1 through 19 is the, is the, is the story of that deliverance. Chapters 20 through 40 will be the laws given on Sinai and all their implications and we will come into those laws fully convinced that those laws are given to us by the grace of God as ways to respond to His grace, not as ways to earn more favor with Him. Because we will notice that those laws were not given until He had liberated them from Egypt. It's not that He said, keep these laws and I'll get you out of Egypt. But He'll get us out of Egypt and when He delivers us, when He redeems us, and sets us free and indwells us with the Holy Spirit. Then he gives us laws and they become our friends by which we say to the Lord Jesus, I love doing your will. I show you my love. And as we live in those laws, we find how loving they are. God says to us, I give you them so that life may go well with you. We find that families go well, life goes well, societies go well when we live according to God's gracious commands. Maybe you're still, however, 
on the bottom of your bondage. There was such a man who was brought to Martin Lloyd-Jones on one occasion. It's one of, one of Lloyd-Jones' favorite stories to tell, one of mine as well. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a famous pastor of Westminster Chapel, former medical doctor and turned uh, powerful preacher in the last century. And he was preaching once in Wales, which is where he was from, and, and uh, the, the men of the church came to him and said, we really want to see if you can help this man in our village, both by your, 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 your ministerial skills and your medical skills, because he's the headmaster of our school. He's a very talented man. He has so much potential, but he's, he's locked into a state of melancholy, a state of depression, we'd say today. He's locked into that, and, and he just can't get outside of it. And he's able, to produce, he's able to do his work, you know, adequately, but he could be so much more. Would you mind visiting with him? No, I'd love to. He went, visited with the man. He said, why don't you tell me where this all began? He said, that's easy. I've volunteered. I was, I was in World War I and with the, the British Navy, and I was, I was uh, put onto a submarine, and I, I was deployed to the Dardanelles, to the Battle of the Dardanelles. But on our way there in the Mediterranean, uh, there, was a, we, there was a thud. We hit something, and, and then the, 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 the submarine shimmered, and then we went down, down, down to the bottom of the Mediterranean. Well, Lloyd-Jones waited for the rest of the story and said, then what happened? He said, well, that's it. Lloyd-Jones said, well, maybe I missed something. Why don't you tell the story again? Okay. World War I, on the way to the Dardanelles, thud, shimmer, down, down, down to the bottom of the Mediterranean. It was the beginning of all my problems. Tell it to me one more time. Dardanelles, thud, shimmer, down, 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 bottom of the Mediterranean. Yes. One more time. Down, 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 bottom of the Mediterranean. Lloyd-Jones, not known for his patience, said, well, good night, man. You're not still on the bottom of the Mediterranean. There had to be something else that happened after that. Somehow you made it to the surface. A destroyer came along. They brought you on board. Uh, They pumped the water out of your lungs. They took you to the land. They put you in the hospital. You got better, and then you became a schoolmaster. You're not still on the Mediterranean. The man said, you're right. I'm not. He was living there. He was living there emotionally. Some of you understand exactly what that is. Still living there. Well, with the help of the gospel, with the help of that, that uh, little bit of application of the gospel, that man went on to be not only a successful schoolmaster, but he trained for the vicarage. Became a preacher of the gospel. That's what Jesus delights to do. And, and, and Martin Lloyd-Jones loved telling that story because he was so delighted to be a part of it as a kinsman redeemer. You have that hope offered to you, that kind of deliverance. And you have that privilege offered to you if you're a Christian to be a kinsman redeemer. We're going to discover great things about God's redemption as we study this great book. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would set us free from everything that holds us captive. We pray, Lord, that we would not be mastered by anything except the Lord Jesus. 
And when we are in Him, and only when we are in Him are we free and free indeed. Oh, Lord, make us not only free, but make us a, a congregation of kinsmen redeemers where we gladly enter into other people's burdens and their sins in order to be kinsmen redeemers to deliver the good news of Jesus Christ to them. We pray it in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen.